Content warning. This episode of Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman contains references to heavy violence, graphic sexual imagery, and elements of trauma throughout the episode, as well as a specific section which includes discussion of a plot featuring miscarriage and an eventual abortion. If any of these topics are triggering to you, there are timestamps in the episode description to skip over the specific sections. Thank you and enjoy the show. person oh my god this is crazy um hello everyone welcome to recommended reading with jackson Heyman. i'm jackson Heyman, and i for the first time ever i am in the same room as my guest our first returning guest my best friend who graciously let me stay in their house for a couple of days uh beck mank hey you know on some level, that kind of implied that you and I have never been in the same room before this, and I would like to clarify, we have met in person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The energy is so different from being in person recording, and I kind of love it. And I love what we are discussing today, which is Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples' epic uh, saga. A, an incredible sci-fi comic that ran for its first 54 issues from March 2012 to July 2018, written by Brian K. Vaughn with pencils, inks, and colors by Fiona Staples. And it's coming back in in a couple of weeks, and I'm freaking out. January 2022, baby! I'm so excited, which is why this is the first episode of 2022, and part one of an extended miniseries on Saga that we'll get back to eventually. Yeah, like, you have to understand going into Saga, um, the, like, compendium of what's out, but not so far, is about the same size as a Lord of the Rings book. Like, you're... It's not a short read. It's not a quick read. It's beautiful. It's complex. I really like quite like it. I'm a big fan of the complex um, sci-fi. But yeah, this is not a one-part uh, kind of book. Yeah, we there is so much that we can't get into that we will have to come back to. Yeah. So, for the uninitiated, um, what is Saga? Um, it's a sci-fi epic set in like this distant galaxy and it focuses on like a conflict between like two warring nations yeah the premise is a lot more simpler than the story becomes the premise is two uh nations that have been at war since antiquity one occupying a planet one occupying that planet's only moon um soldiers from each side fall in love have a child and then spend their lives on the run um, with their love and their child as a testament of that the war is unnecessary. It's a solid premise, but oh boy, how does that play out? <laughs> it it's so it's a it's when you say it like that, it's extremely simple and simplistic. I said the same thing twice. <laughs> Good job. Yeah, no, like it's very like classic in that sense. But I then, would not call it classic <laughs> in the way it presents this. Because, dear listeners, it gets weird if i can quote um the book itself uh page um, page one this is the first piece of dialogue am i shitting it feels like i'm shitting (laughs) it 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 opens on a birth it it opens on a birth scene and then there's so much weird shit happens that it, it throws it at you but it's incredible and i cried uh did you cry 
Oh, I didn't cry, but there is a scene. I don't know if we'll get to it today because it's pretty far in here. Um, that was not me closing the book. Big oops, big oops. Um, there's a scene here where I just stopped. Like I put the book down and I went, came back to it a couple of days later because I'm like, I will. I need to wait. I need to process and wait. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, how do we start this? Like, what? What do we start with? Like, pay. I, I think I, we go through. I think we go through. It's so like, yeah, it starts with the birth scene. Like we mentioned, it's about star-crossed um, lovers from opposite sides of an eternal war. Um, and it starts with the birth of their daughter. Yeah. Um, who also serves as the book's narrator. They haven't really established exactly when um, the daughter, Hazel, is looking back on all of this and telling the story. But it is clear, like, they make it pretty clear from the get-go. It's Hazel after all of this has been said and done, looking back and telling her story. I'm kind of hoping that by the end of the comic, they establish why they like what, like why she's telling the story, where she is when that happens. Is this like a on my deathbed grandchildren situation or what? It's like it's like the it's like the framing device in Titanic where it's like old Rose. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I feel like that's what's going on, but they haven't actually established that. But yeah, we should we should talk about like this core set of characters. Yeah, this core pairing. The love of Marco and Alana, these central characters that we follow throughout the entire first 54 chapters of this series. And I think they're some of the most interesting characters in fiction that I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. So we have Alana and Marco, like um, Jackson said. Uh, they are in love. They consider themselves married. Um, they are both soldiers um, initially. Um, do they ever, like, name the species that they are, or do they just um, label them inhabitants of Landfall, inhabitants of race? Yeah, I think that's what it is, because we have the, the people of Landfall, who where Alana is from, which is this planet where all the inhabitants there um, have wings. Yep, and some that... of them can fly, some of them cannot. The comic touches on that, but doesn't it doesn't appear to be super important. So you're like, oh, yeah, that's a thing. And then you have Marco's people um, from Wreath, who have, like, various types of, like, sheep and goat horns, and there's there's a name of, like, that type of animal that I'm blanking on right now, but... Goat, goats and sheep. Goats and sheep. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, but the other main thing that distinguishes people, besides the fact, you know, they hate each other and have been at war... The... I keep saying eternal war. I do mean eternal war. The book establishes from the get-go, hey, we don't remember why these people are fighting. They just are. It's it's one of those conflicts that, like, it started between, like, this planet and its moon, but now it's so, like, far out in the outer reaches mm-hmm. of the galaxy that these planets are, like, living pretty civil, and, like, there's not much going on on those planets. Yeah, yeah, but, like, we'll get there, like... The other main thing that I was going to say differentiates them is a lot of people, the people of Landfall, are a very, like, futuristic technology society. That's sort of, like, the realm of sci-fi they fall into. Whereas Marco's people are a hyper-spiritual, magical society. So, like, uh, Saga makes space for both of these ideas to exist. Like, there is magic and ghosts and spells, and that is all accepted as the reality of the universe. Like, yeah, magic is real. And there is this hyper-futuristic technology, and that is accepted as real and possible. And that's really cool, because, like, a lot of stuff doesn't let these things coexist. Like, a lot of sci-fi I've seen where there's, like, quote-unquote magic. It's like, oh, we just learned to harness the energy via our, our science. It's and, like, that's a good concept, but that's not what's going on here. It's Star Wars on crack, I think. <laughs> I think that's, like, the biggest sort of... I think with with my like lens of sci-fi like the thing that has always the the thing that has always been my way of looking at things is Star Wars and it sort of takes a lot of elements of Star Wars like two warring factions this massive galaxy full of places that we barely touch on and it it just it enhances them so much and just overloads you with all these different ideas and it all works yeah i think that's something that's very hard to do but stars is an example of, a, of something that does it sock is an example of something that does it that gives you all this information like like you've used the word overload is a good word here but you accept it like it doesn't require a deep explanation of what's going on it's like okay 
this is what's going on. These things are all acceptable. But yeah, like, getting back to the story, they have the baby. Um, the two governments, both sides, are both aware that this child is on the way and are both separately trying to hunt down this couple and hunt down the baby. Um, it's never made super clear what the plan is after that, if it's a trial, if it's an assassination. There's a lot going on. I th- Everyone's doing their own thing. I think they just want this these two... It for like a propaganda sense, these two and their and their baby, like they don't want the knowledge getting out there that like two people from opposite sides of a war were able to fall in love and have a child. Yeah, they don't want they don't want that known. So instead of fighting them themselves, finding them themselves, excuse me, um, they use proxies. So yeah. many proxies. In fact, at this point, the whole war is being fought through proxy nations. It's a, it, it's a little fucked up, my dudes. There's, a, there's a lot, and I think we should just very, like, take this free form and just see what happens. Yeah, I have the book in front of me. Let's go! Let's do this. So, I want to, like, talk about the world building a bit, and just really... Because I want to I wanna bring it back to Star Wars, because... The energy that I've realized this book, this comic has, is a lot like the Star Wars prequels. And, like, the generation before us hates the prequels, I think. I'm, okay, like, I'm very neutral on the prequels. Like, I'm still, like, the older I get, the more I get into Star Wars, mainly because my husband is incredibly into Star Wars, and he likes to bring me into that, and I like, I like how he brings me into it. The prequels I'm pretty net zero on, especially as I get into more Star Wars media and see all the other stuff that was going on around the prequels. I'm like, they didn't do as much on the prequels as they could have. Yes. Like, there's a lot of um, novels and comics and games that play into the prequels and build up that world building even more. I'm someone who really has started to enjoy the prequels, like, way more from, like, a meme ironic sense. <laughs> Because I I think why I like I like some of the stuff in like the sequel trilogy. Like I I think Last Jedi is a very interesting movie. I know that's a unpopular opinion to a lot of people, but where those sequels they they fail is like they're not really having fun with mm. the Star Wars universe. The prequels have so much fun. Yeah. I know I slandered George Lucas last time I was on this podcast, and I will stand by what I said, but at least he was having fun. At least you could tell that he, like, liked what he made. George just sat in a room, came up with a bunch of weird things, and then just put them on screen, and it's amazing. You get big fish. You get 50s diners in giant space cities. You get... You get whatever Jar Jar was up to. <laughs> I, 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 I love the prequel. Jar Jar was a Sith Lord. <laughs> Jar Jar was a Sith Lord. Oh my God! And you cannot tell me otherwise. I, what was my point here? Shh, don't worry about it. Anyway, Saga. Um, but I, I think Saga takes like that energy of having fun with creating new societies, new worlds, new characters, new creatures that George Lucas had when he was doing the prequels and runs with it and and goes like 200% because you get tons of just weird background characters, new planets, new worlds, new giant weird monsters are always around. And it, like, it throws so much at you, and but it never feels like it's throwing information on you or, like, reading you massive amounts of lore. It It is all there, and no, none of the characters, like, are weirded out by it. So you just accept it. Yeah, exactly. So one of the first things we're introduced to after this world starts um, going, after Alana um, and Marco's first escape... Because right after the baby, right after Hazel is born, they're attacked on one side by um, mercenaries hired by Landfall, on the other side by residents of Wreath. Um, right after that, we meet what will become another one of the main characters. This is one of those books where the narratives jump around. 
Which is really interesting for me because I never read it like issue to issue. I only have read it as the compendium. That is so how me, I've also read it. Yeah, yeah, so for me, this has been presented as a single full novel. For other people, this was presented in a month-to-month um, kind of way, which is what we're going to be exposed to coming back into it now. Um, but getting that aside, one of the first other characters we're introduced to, whose plot will also be followed to like the same degree as Marco and Alana's, is Prince Robot. The best character in this series and by best we mean the biggest piece of shit to grace the galaxy he is this just like extremely holier than thou aristocratic robot who every however given all that the third word out of his mouth every time is about sex yeah he he is horny yeah this, I, I, and like not in like a fun like bard kind of way but in a like creepy uncomfortable the kind of way yeah he is an extremely creepy character yes and he's vicious and he has like an arm that can turn into a gun and frankly anything else he wants um so prince robot is part of a species that has Heads that are different electronics. Um, TVs, computers, um, the king of this planet is a giant flat screen. And the, the screens on these devices will um, show their emotions or thoughts um, to varying degrees. Sort of how much they let slip. The same way you know you can let your expression slip. Their bodies are largely biological. But they also appear to have an ability to like manipulate their appearances to some degrees. Like we mentioned that his arms, uh, can, he uses them as a gun most often. But we've also seen him just turn to goop. It's it's a liquid. It's like liquid metal terminators with TV heads, and we don't see a lot of like the robot people. Like we usually only follow a couple of them, and most of them are members of the aristocracy. Yes, the robot people are a monarchy um, who generally rents out their army to the highest bidder. And you see, like the upper class, like depending on how high your social standing is determines what size TV you have for a head <laughs> or what model. Cause we do follow a, a, a lower class member of the robot kingdom later in the book. And he's got like a CRT and yeah. the pr- and Prince robot and like the people around him are like Apple IMAX from 2002 and King I robot this came out in 2012. Like that, that's kind of important to the, representation of the robot technology i love it so much king robots a flat screen it's but we also have another character that we sort of follow throughout the book and that is the will who is what is known as a freelancer which is basically bounty hunter yeah bounty hunter assassin mercenary one of the fun things they do with this though um similar to star wars there is a guild for these um, mercenaries. They have a union. They have union reps. They have. Like, they this have an established part of like galactic culture. They have agents. Yeah. They they have like a sleazy slug man who sits on a beach and like finds them jobs. Is he supposed to be a slug? I thought he was. A, I thought he was. Um, what are they called? Um, seahorses. He's something. <laughs> He's something. <laughs> but the will appears largely human. Um, he's never referred to as a human. No one in this book is technically a human. But yeah, he's as close to a human as we see in this series. And he is accompanied by the second best character in the book, a lion cat. Lion cat! Who is a cat who, like like a sphinx cat. Is that is that? Yeah, what he the looks green... like a bluish-green sphinx cat about the size of probably like a, um, a German shepherd. <laughs> yeah. Who can tell when people are lying. Like, simply can tell when people are lying. If they're lying, the cat will announce this to the room. And it is one of the, just like, we we don't see a lot of animal companions in traditional sci-fi, and we get a lot of those in Saga, and yeah. I love it. It's one of the nice things, I think, about a written format like this versus um, doing a show or a movie is animal companions are easy. They're as easy as human companions. Yes. Because you can just, you just draw them. You don't have to worry about CGI. You don't have to worry about training an animal. You just draw them. This is a really good segue to kind of, I think, the impetus behind this book as a whole. Because uh, Vaughn and Staples, um, 
Vaughn, uh, they both have been working in the comics industry for an incredibly long time with extremely storied careers. Um, Vaughn is the creator of my favorite team of superheroes of all time, The Runaways. And um, they have been doing this for so long. They've seen how in like the last couple of decades, Hollywood has gone full force on adapting comic books and they've seen how things can turn out great, but also not turn out really well. And their impetus behind Saga was to create something that was specifically for the medium of comic books. And I think they do that really well because like so much happens that I don't want to see represented on screen because like, I, I think it's perfect the way it is. Yeah, yeah. That's something um, I've brought up a couple of times to various people is how we've kind of developed this attitude um, as creatives, like in our wider culture, that the end goal for everything is a live action adaptation, whether that's a movie or a TV series. And that's not true. And Saga's a really great um, example of that because sim- it just won't work. Um, part of why it wouldn't work is just the complexity of it. Part of why it wouldn't work is... Um, budget reasons, quite frankly, which is how fantastical it is. And part of it is perception, in a way, because Saga is very much, we actually haven't mentioned this yet, um, Saga is a, um, a very explicit comic. Oh, yeah. There is a lot of violence, there is a lot of disturbing content, there is a lot of sex, um, and while you can like sort of get away with that in drawings, that carries a lot more weight when you um, look at re- asking real human actors to do things. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I want to see like the scene of like the big dragon monster filleting itself on like a Netflix original series. <laughs> <laughs> okay, not. We're not going to avoid talking about like the sexual content here, but also like. If we sound like we're being evasive, it's because we're being evasive because and you should just go read it um, with caution and awareness. And I, I don't want to, like, spoil anything, too, because I think the, the greatest, one of the greatest things was not knowing how, knowing what was coming next. Yeah, they do go to the brothel planet in chapter two, though. That's true. The brothel planet shows up very early. <laughs> yep. But yeah, um... Sort of following along the plot a little bit more. Let's pretend we have a structure. Yeah, um, let's try and be structured. <laughs> um, following on the plot a little bit more, Hazel has been born. Hazel and her parents have escaped um, the first attack on their lives. Hazel and her parents are trying to leave the planet on which Hazel was born, Cleave, which was one of the um, proxy planets for the um, Eternal War. Like a like a like specifically a prison planet. Yeah. Where like they because because Alana meets Marco in prison. Yeah, which they actually don't even tell us until um what like chapter thirty out of fifty four. Something like that. Like yeah, like way into it. It it really like it tells you what you need to know in that very moment. Yep. And doesn't worry about like expositing. Yeah. So they're trying to escape Cleve, and they encounter one of the first freelancers besides the Will that we meet, um, the Stock. And we did not mention this before, but all the freelancers use um, proxy titles rather than their real names at work. That start with the, the Stock, the Will. The Brand. Yeah. Like, those are the three that we meet in chapters 1 through 54. Yeah, and there'll probably be more. They're I want to see region. more freelancers. I think... I think Boba Fett is one of the most interesting, and like bounty hunter culture is one of the most interesting parts of Star Wars. I think if they lean more to the like weird guild, the 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 guild, the workings of the bounty hunter guild, I just want to know more about that. Yeah. So before they um leave Cleve, they pick up one more companion. They pick up a ghost. <laughs> Remember, I said magic was just an accepted fact. Ghosts are also an accepted fact. A ghost just shows up. Um, her name's Isabel. She soul bonds with Hazel and is basically her babysitter for most of this part of the book. Yep, and soul bonding essentially just means that wherever Hazel goes, Isabel will be there, rather than Isabel being bound to the place that she died. Which was Cleve. Isabel was one of the many, many child victims of the war. Yeah. 
it does not lead, it does not stray away from how brutal this war has been to everyone except the main two planets. Yeah, yeah, I don't I don't think it's a stretch to say that um Saga is very anti-war. Like anti-war, anti-military. Yeah. Like cuz and, and think about like when this was coming out, like 2012. Like yeah. everything like the, the United States to be fair, hasn't been hasn't fought a war on U.S. soil since the seventeenth, in the nineteenth century. And that's kind of part of the point, isn't it? Because there's no war being fought on um, landfall. There's no war being fought on reef. It's all being fought elsewhere. Wow, we got really deep right there. <laughs> and well, <laughs> how do we go back from that? We go forward. So. They escape the bounty hunter. They escape Cleve eventually. By riding on a spaceship made of wood. Yes. Um, the planet gives them a living spaceship that is literally a tree. It's it's one of like the coolest like ship designs. And and that's another thing. Like, they don't like use just traditional designs for any sci-fi concepts in here. Yeah, it's all very unique and very diverse in what um which makes sense. You're populating a whole galaxy here. Like, this is one of the few series that, like, guns are barely used by a lot of the main characters. Like, the Will fights with a lance. A lance that can, like, extend, but it's a lance and it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Or one of the other first weapons we see in the book is called a Heartbreaker, where it's technically a gun, but it does no lethal damage to the average adult. It just makes you um, relive your worst traumas. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... Which, frankly, that, that does the trick. That does the trick, doesn't it? Do you want... Do you, would you get hit with the trauma gun? I would get hit with the trauma gun because I had a good childhood. <laughs> I'm in the middle of a... We, I, I came into this with no notes because, like, I just wanted to, like, I, I thought it, I think it would be a great, like, word vomit of just, like, what we like about this book. Yeah. And so I feel like we've definitely set up the premise here. Um, again, not trying to go through the whole plot, just want to make sure that you have enough that if you're like, hey, maybe this one's for me, you can actually say that with a little bit of confidence. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like you just said, talking a little bit more about um, what we like about it. Um, I like the complexity. It, yeah. And I like the maturity of it. Like, I don't think things need to be explicit or obscene just for the sake of it. And this story, despite the amount of that, isn't. It gives exactly what's necessary to tell this beautiful, complex um, story about love and war and family. And it doesn't shy away from it. It doesn't try to couch it at all. It definitely, like, has the vibe of, like, in terms of, like, the way the characters speak to each other and behave, especially with, like, Marco and Alana's relationship. Mm-hmm. They it, speak like real, like, grown-ass people. It's like, it's like, I, because I, you have the, you have the panel, oh, you had the book open to a panel of, like, Alana screaming yeah, and, they're screaming at each other because she found out that Marco had been engaged before they got married. And, like, well, I don't know why my brain is going to marriage story, but, <laughs> but like, I, it's like the vibe of a Noah Baumbach film in a sci-fi world, and now I kind of just want to see Marco punch a wall and do the every morning I wake up and wish you were dead bit. <laughs> but that's not those characters, that's not these characters. Despite, like, all the faults and everything they do and their actions, Marco and Alana love each other. Mm-hmm. And even when they uh, are not happy with each other, even when they are frustrated with each other, even when they um, think that they hate each other, they sit down and they work through it. And if it takes time, it takes time. It's such... And it's nice. It's nice to see... A relationship, a long-term relationship portrayed as a series of ebbs and flows of emotions and dynamics and work, like a lot and a lot of work, um, rather than just like, oh, our love will save us. No, that's it's it's not like the love of Mark and Alana is what will end the war. 
it's like I, I it think is the conviction of Marco and Alana. Yes, it is the conviction, and even though like these two are in conflict at points, they are able to work it out. And I think that's oh my god, did I just realize that that's kind of a, a metaphor for the war itself? <laughs> did you not catch that? Did you not catch that like core element of this book? I didn't say it out loud until now. <laughs> Everyone applaud me. I had an intro. I had a thought way later than everyone else. The screensaver hit the corner, guys. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing I like about this book is the characters, but specifically like the character designs throughout throughout. Yeah, yeah. The art style is beautiful. Um, I've definitely like read comics and um other media where the art style didn't fit the story they were trying to tell. This one, this one hits it. This one hits it on the head. It's realistic, but not, it doesn't put a lot of effort into being hyper-realistic. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's also very bright. Even on planets that have very dark color schemes, it's not overshadowed like a Batman comic. Oh, yeah. Like, it leans full into all these bright colors and, like, capturing mood and tone with color, with light, with shading. Uh, Fiona Staples, you are an incredibly amazing artist. I love everything you do. I want so many of these panels framed. Um, I, I, it's an incredible art style. And no character looks the same, I think. Like, even characters of, like, the same species or from the same planet, you get different designs. And, like, everyone looks unique and their designs reflect their personalities. Yeah, like, even members of the same family are are unique to each other. And, um, like, we do meet some of these characters, like, parents and siblings, and you see the resemblances, but you also see <clears throat> what living a whole life of your own, like, does to you. Yes. And, like I said, like, it goes into that, um, George Lucas style of, like, here is an interesting character... Um, you're not, you're never going to see them again. Um. <laughs> but we still threw our whole back into this design. Sorry. <laughs> Beck had the, Beck, Beck had the book open to the panel of Prince Robot sitting on the toilet. And I just. Reading a romance novel. I just need everyone to know that that exists. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like we said, Prince Robot kind of a scumbag not because he uses the toilet but because he is reading a romance novel he stole from a dead person whilst yes. he is on the toilet <laughs> um but he is also um um one of the other things he does in this toilet is receive a call from his pregnant wife um a little bit of a spoiler this whole thing's a spoiler you, you should have known that coming in there's probably yes. a spoiler warning at the top of this podcast yes um the second like within days of her um death He's back out there. He's sleeping with everything that'll that'll let him. Yeah, his wife dies after giving birth. Uh, well, his wife is murdered and his son is stolen. But he is. But then, while that's all happening, he's on the brothel planet that we mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. Like he's told, "Hey, your wife, your wife was um, dying. Your son was kidnapped." And he's like, "I guess I'll just go to the brothel planet and pretend I don't exist." Yeah, but. Going back to, like, just all of the characters in this book, it's it's like if every scene was the cantina scene in Star Wars A New Hope. Like, there's so much to look at and so much to go, so much going on, and you are intrigued with every single character and you want to know every single one of their stories, which mm -hmm. I think is the perfect segue to my new segment... Um, Jackson Amon's top five background characters in all of Saga. Um, I I have these images open. Um, I'm I'm just gonna rattle these off. Number five, a uh, Noreen, who uh, Hazel and um, uh, Marco's mother and a couple other characters are sent to prison at one point. Yep. And Noreen is like she is in charge of like the education of like the children born or brought to that prison yeah because there's always there's a concerning number of children in this prison there's a lot of children in this prison there are at least like 15 children in hazel's class <laughs> and, and they're being educated by another like third party species yes um, she is this like it's I, i'm looking at 
it, it's insectoid, but it's not like any insect that I've ever seen before. Like she's she's got the four legs. She's got like the th- the thorax, I think it is, and yeah. then she has the and she has arms. And it's like a bug. She's a bug centaur. Yeah, I I thought she was like a spider centaur. Like I don't think she, um that she's not the only bug centaur. There's also we mentioned the stalk earlier. The stalk is also a bug like a bug centaur kind of deal. They're not the same thing though. Like they're actually distinct species from each yeah, other. Yeah, the stalk has way more arms. Yeah, the stalk has like many arms, many eyes. Um, she doesn't wear clothes, but it's not weird because she has an anatomy that doesn't lend itself to it, whereas Noreen does. Yeah, Noreen like is. Um, wearing a bill sweater. Yeah, she she's wearing a sweater and she has like the mom haircut. Yeah, and she has and she's got like the big bug eyes and it's she's peak character design throughout Saga. But she's just so she's such an interesting piece of that because I think one of the most interesting designs a lot of sci-fi strays away from is like the insectoid sort of stuff. Yeah, you normally see it when you want to um portray a character who is inhuman or unsympathetic like when you're trying to portray something like hey this is so wholly unlike you that you don't have to feel bad for like murder yeah (laughs) you would feel bad if you killed noreen yes she makes me feel safe uh she helps them escape from prison at one point it's Mm -hmm. it's great um number four dr sheriff (laughs) okay um quick uh quick note before we get into dr sheriff um um, just bringing up a trigger warning that was mentioned oh, yes. the episode. Um, yes. Trigger warning, this is where we're going to talk about abortion. Please um, check those timestamps. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, so Dr. Sheriff is the head of... An abortion planet. Essentially, abortion is legal in the wider galaxy. Um, at one point, um, Alana has a miscarriage. And because of those laws, has to go to this particular planet to be um to miscarry. Yes, but <laughs> Doctor Sheriff specifically is an owl in a cowboy hat, pink cowboy boots, and like a doctor's coat. Yeah, and he portrays himself as just this quirky little fun guy. It's he's like, "Howdy, folks! <laughs> Welcome to Abortion Town." <laughs> <laughs> and that's the vibe it gives off and it's it's pretty fucked up it's but so it, jarring it's so jarring that this and like it doesn't present the whole concept this way like this book takes like what what hey sorry not what hazel excuse me what alana is going through very seriously yeah but here's this little guy but he's he's just a little guy yeah um yeah that's because i don't want to dwell on like how fucked up that is for for much longer number three um uh, alana's boss at the open circuit now the open circuit is like um it's basically the entertainment for um okay um can i talk about the open circuit first yes you can talk about so we've talked about this um this wider galaxy of these beautiful complex horrific, fascinating um, cultures and wars and peoples and histories. Throughout all of these peoples and cultures and wars and histories and governments and laws, of all the things to have a, like, blanket, um, be, like, have a blanket band, like, hey, no matter where you go, this is illegal, it's soap opera. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The Open Circuit is a traveling soap opera troupe that performs soap operas whilst wearing superhero costumes to, like, hide their identities because their work their like their entertainment is illegal and you have a lot of people that are viewers of the open circuit through like vr headsets yeah yeah and you get like vr hecklers at one yeah and like everyone's like okay we're gonna log into our secret dark web vr channels to watch um people yell about like you have a mistress and a baby the baby isn't mine (laughs) bullshit and then punch (laughs) each other it's and they're wearing these like bright like cheesy like late 60s tv um superhero costumes hey like peak like under um superman with his underwear on the outside costume hey i'm an actor i am looking for work <laughs> i bet they you gotta do what you gotta pay the bills you gotta pay the bills somehow yeah yeah but uh, alana's boss uh my number three in my top five top five background characters um, he's the most, like, defined. He spent, you see the most of him, but, like, in the grand scheme of things, he's barely around. 
but he's like he's like master splinter from the ninja turtles meets a gargoyle like this weird like stone rat in uh in like a robe and he's just he's such like he's a men he's i i i'd like him as my boss he seems pretty okay in the grand scheme of things. He is technically a crime lord, given the circumstances. Yeah. But, you know... We'll take it. We'll take it. <laughs> Number two. The convenience store owner. <laughs> this weird, goopy green man with, like, long, noodly limbs and big, wide-open nostrils. And... We literally see him, like, for just long enough for him to get held up. Yeah, he, get, <laughs> he gets held up. Like I said, these are background characters. I know, but, like, some are more background than others. Yeah. Um, if this this will never get a live-action adaptation, but this character would be played by Kevin McDonald if they did. Um, Kevin McDonald... A uh, member of the Kids in the Hall, also Pleakley from Lilo and Stitch. <laughs> and that is the energy this character gives off. You're right, you're right. Yeah. All right. Drum roll, please. Number one. I, oh, this, it's obvious because we already talked about him earlier. It's King Robot. King Robot! He is, he shows up for like three pages, and two of those pages are a splash page that just shows him. Yeah, I think we're supposed to think he looks like um, Henry VIII, but with a like sixty-inch flat screen head. <laughs> and and like the, the the image displayed on his flat screen head is like Niagara Falls. Yeah, I it's think... like a giant waterfall. He's supposed to be in mourning, so it makes absolute sense. <laughs> but it's literally like Henry VIII's body. Yeah, like it's, it's it's a short little chonky guy with a big flat screen head, and it is incredible. And it's just a testament to the character design in this book. Mm-hmm. And his head is literally the same height as him. Like, I can't emphasize <laughs> enough. Like, it, it's it's, exa- it, it's exactly what I wanted to. Like, um, like, hey, like, hey, this guy thinks he's grand. This guy thinks he's hot shit. But he looks ridiculous. <laughs> he's not intimidating. He's like, like this is an abomination to God. <laughs> I'm so glad I put this segment in here. This is, this is yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, and and even like just later characters that become part of this story, like you get you get more people from uh, Marco's planet from Wreath, um, and you get other different species. You get fish people. Like there there are fish people in this book that, and then you see like just weird. Cronenberg combinations of limbs or animal or sorts of things. And I just want to know, Fiona Staples, I want to see the world as you see it. Because it's your, her imagination is just so vast. And like imagination from both the writing stance and the art stance is what is so great about this book and beck just has the page open to another one of my favorite background characters this weird brain in the jar who only says one line <laughs> yeah there's a brain in the jar on a, on a at a prison who just says i told you guard duty with her is the fucking worst <laughs> it's just, this brain is done with everything this brain is so sick of everyone's shit and that that's it that's the only page of the brain that's the only page of the brain Oh my, like, yeah. if we wanted to, this this episode could just be flipping through this book and me, Leo DiCaprio, pointing <laughs> at, different, at, at different creatures, because I love creatures, I love character designs. Oh, yeah. God, imagine, if, imagine Henson effects <laughs> with these characters. Yeah, like we said, live action adaptation, not the end goal of art. Um, these creators have very specifically said we don't want that. If you know, you know, Baxter Wall had to entrust this to any particular studio or creators, 
Jim Henson Company. The Henson Company. Hands down. But, like, the Creature Shop specifically, none of this Muppet bullshit. <laughs> I, I'm i so sorry. I, th- I feel like I just disrespected... on you. I disrespected <laughs> the Muppets. I will walk to New York and tell, and tell everyone at Sesame Street what you said. <laughs> <laughs> no, not Elmo. I'll tell Elmo. <laughs> New York, baby! <laughs> Okay, so we've talked a little about the plot. We've talked a bit about um, character design. Um, the thing I want to get into is why should you read this? Oh, yes. Why should you yeah. read this? Um, you should read this if something that you like out of stories, whether that is on the screen, in a more uh, traditional novel, in graphic novels, comics, what have you. If what you like is... Um, intense character-driven um, dramas. If what you like is um, complex world building, I'll say you should not read this if you want a pointy-point shoot-shoot. Like, there's a lot of that, but it's all in service of a greater narrative. Like, I've seen a lot of comics that have tried to instill senses of, like, pathos in their characters. Mm-hmm. And, like, there are points where, like, like, things will happen to characters in comics where I read it and I'm like, okay, but I didn't feel, I, the reader, didn't feel anything. Yeah. This book makes you feel a lot of things. It makes you feel sad. It makes you feel horrified. It makes you feel angry. It makes you feel happy. It makes mm-hmm. you feel, to to borrow a, to borrow a quote from the book, high as fuck. <laughs> It makes it makes you feel like wow they sure do say fuck a lot. They say fuck a lot. It's <laughs> some people just say fuck a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's human. It's a human book, even though you're looking at like mole people and fish people and weird like alien creatures. Yeah, I think it's very good. Again, for just story elements that people might be interested in, it's very good at telling a very human story with human allegory despite this fantastical setting because sometimes a fantastical setting is an excuse to not have to tell a human story and that's okay those are some really those are good stories in their own right this one is very human and with human complexity i I feel like i'm repeating myself here but i guess i just want to drive home like um how the core of this is not these amazing character designs the core of this is not um this complex world building the core of this is not um like intense space um space opera sci-fi the core of this is the connection of people to each other it is about relationship ta-da it's (laughs) it's not a black and white story yeah it's told in extreme shades of gray there is not, like, an evil empire for these main characters yeah, to fight off. Yeah, it doesn't try to make you um, sympathize with um, Landfall or Wreath. It doesn't try to get you to even see Marco and Alana as good people. Um, you can kind of see Hazel as a good person inherently, but that's because at the end of fifty-four of chapter 54, she's still only, like, eight. She's a toddler throughout most of this yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. So, like, she gets a pass. The, chil- she, the children get a pass. The children in this book... So well, like you see, it, there is um one child who you see grow up throughout the book. Like she's like sixteen, fourteen to sixteen by the end of it, and that's really fascinating because they get into her having her own moral complexities. Yeah, yeah, because they're like, hey, kids do become adults though. <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy, and like, like the main goal of these characters is not to end the war it's to survive yeah it's to just be allowed to live like there's no greater plot about like the only way our child will be happy is if we can stop the war no the whole book is them like the whole series is them being on the run and like they never stop being on the run they're never in any one location for more than a few um in world months yeah and like and, 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 like, you, you don't just see their story, which is something I also really like about this. You see how the war is affecting everyone. You get, like, the perspective of people just trying to live their life. You get the perspective of, like, a suburban community. You get perspectives of, like, government agents or royalty of other worlds. And 
you also get like the journalist perspective. Like war, mm-hmm. there are war journalists yeah. in this, and they are. And some... those are my favorite side characters. They're not background characters. They're side characters. They become part of the main cast by the end. Do we want um, to talk about the gay fishmen? We got ten minutes. Let's talk about the gay fishmen. <laughs> Let's Let's... Tell, tell us about some gay fishmen. Uh yeah, so you we meet Upshur and Doth, um, two journalists who are also boyfriends, and um, they they are on the trail of Marco and Alana just because like their story has been getting out throughout the entire galaxy. Yeah, different like whispers and things that have escaped government's notices, and that's another angle here is that there we've talked about third parties who have been contracted into the war. There are third parties that have not been contracted into the war. And 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 one of those third parties is a literally a planet of journalists. Yeah. Of fish journalists. Fish journalists. Who are also homophobic. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we should mention um the fish journalist planet um has strong anti-queer laws. These gay fish husbands, um, are living in secret. Fish J. Jonah Jameson is um, really against the idea of gay marriage. Yes. Yep. This is a sentence I didn't think I'd say today. <laughs> and yeah, here we are. I feel like you should have not expected uh, that sentence, but things on that caliber. Yeah, we did already mention the dragon. We did mention the dragon. But yeah, they're... They're very... Again, once again, very human. Um, They sort of feel like... If Peter Parker and Clark Kent, not Spider-Man and Superman, Peter Parker and Clark Kent yes. were boyfriends. These two, yes. 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 Like, young, like young, fresh-moved in Metropolis Clark yeah. and, and 60s Peter down on his luck. Yeah. Oh, God. I, oh, and their character designs are great. Actually, you know who their character designs remind me of? Who? Um, Frog and Toad. Like, in, like, yeah, from, like, the kids' books. Like, like the guess, book like, character? Like, with Frog and Toad, Frog and Toad. <laughs> you, have the to- you have the taller one who's better dressed, and you have the short little green uh, gremlin boyfriend. Well, there's, well, well, there's, a, there's also, like, the Cru- Cruella DeVille's two henchmen from um, 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, it's the, the character silhouette of, like, one taller, one shorter, maybe a little bit more rotund. That yeah. like if you see the silhouette, they look like the number ten. <laughs> like that is that's peak character design. And we love them for it. We love peak character design. Yeah. Uh, there's a Cyclops in this book too. Yeah, sorry, I'm still flipping, and I just flipped to the Cyclops who is the guy writing the romance novel. Yeah, the, the, it's so crazy that the main romance of this book sort of hinges on a romance novel written by a cyclops who lives in a lighthouse on a otherwise almost abandoned planet <laughs> you get and the cyclops falls in love with marco's mother and then marco and then marco's mother goes to prison and then and the cyclops gets impaled through the eye by prince robot is that Prince Robot? That is by Prince Robot, isn't it? I thought it was. No, no, it's by um, it's by Marco's ex fiance who's traveling with the Will. There's a lot of going on here, it's... guys. There's a lot going on. We've already somehow managed to tell more than I thought we would actually accomplish in this episode. I didn't we've said literally nothing at all for I, an hour. I didn't. We have been. It is. We've almost been going an hour, and we've sort of just been word vomiting things at you, um. I hope, well, like, I just hope, like, any of what we said gets you interested in this book. Because, like, I I didn't know anything about it going in, except that, like, every high-ranking person in, like, comics criticism and comics journalism it tells people to read Saga. Mm-hmm. Like, there's this show that w- was on YouTube for a while where just... This dude goes comic shopping with celebrities, which is the type of content I really like to watch, even though it's very, like, you know they're here to promote something. It's very, like, factory created. But every single... This this guy, he he recommends Saga to every every person he, go, he goes to this comic store with. He... I, I think he gives... Um, he... I... 
I'm pretty sure there's a moment where he gives Jake Gyllenhaal a copy of Saga. <laughs> and it's just, it's it's crazy, like, like, this has been a book that I'm sure, like, if you're in the comics community at all that, and you haven't read it, like, people have said that you should read this. And I think we're here to tell you that you should read this if you like good comic storytelling, because that's what it presents. It presents a lot of things going on that are all interesting and you just want more. And speaking of wanting more, do you have any predictions for the future of Saga? I do not because I wasn't able to predict anything in the first half. Oh, good um, point. I'm not going to make promise in the second half. All we've been given thus far is the cover art for uh, Chapter 55. And the first, um, the first thing to note is out of the three characters depicted on on it, um, two of them are not currently known. Two of them are brand new, and they are standing behind Hazel, yes. who is noticeably a bit older than she is at the end of the first half of this story. Yeah, and I, so yeah, I, that's going to be a thing. I, I want to talk because I have the image up. I, I want to talk about Hazel in this cover for a second. It's very they've portrayed her as like a child magician. Like she has a top hat. One of the other characters is throwing down like a deck of cards, a deck of flyers. I I don't know what is Hazel going to get on the open circuit and do magic. It's I like I said I don't know. There, I don't think anyone could know. Like. We were left in a very tenuous position at the end of chapter 54. Um, yeah, should we say it or should I let it go? Um, I think if you've made it this far in the episode, you've probably already read it. Or have decided you just don't give a fuck about spoilers. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so um, at the end of chapter 54, the final um, picture in 54 they left us with in 2018 is Marco's um, dead body. Yeah. Um, Marco is um killed at the end of chapter fifty four and brutally stabbed yeah. with the Will's extendo lance. Yeah. And actually, at the end of fifty four, um, Alana and Hazel don't know that yet. Yeah. So I guess my one prediction is Alana and Hazel are going to find out that their husband, uh, husband and father, respectively, um, has died. Oh god! And, like, people have gone seriously injured in um in Saga. People have you know spent um implied months or even years um in intense medical care in Saga. There is no they don't pull any cheap shots with death. When people when characters are pronounced dead, they're dead. Yes, and that yeah, like you, I don't think there's anything coming back for a. There's no there's no coming back for Marco. Yeah, um, I would be i'd be shocked if if marco is um alive at all i think we will see him in like flashbacks oh yeah that seems likely enough we will see him we will see marco it's not like marco is gone gone but But marco is dead and anything we see of him will totally be flashbacks yes and hazel has like this massive group of surrogate parents yeah because by the end of this um Prince Robot has somehow become one of her surrogate parents, but he's also dead by the end of 54. Yes. Uh, and he deserves it. Uh, one of the last things he does, one of the last things he does before he dies is um, beat his son. So... Oh my god, that's right. <laughs> oh my god, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, one of the last things he does is lay hands on his son. So, Ugh. no sympathy. No, uh, he deserved it. Going back to, like, the issue, the chapter 55 cover for a second... Um, there's a character that I'm so interested in, and it is like he is he is a big koala man with a like a cybernetic arm and cargo shorts. And I think this is like I'm so I want to know your story, sir. Sir, tell me everything about you. He it feels almost Wizard of Oz esque. Yeah, yeah. But maybe that's just me seeing a semi-robotic man with... Um, with an axe? axe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, you're right. That might that might be all. That, like, that might just be reading into semi-robotic men with axes. 
yeah, that's uh, Saga Part 1. That's Saga Part 1. Thank you for listening. We talked for almost exactly an hour. And we somehow told you everything and nothing. Uh, There are whole characters who become deeply relevant to the main cast who we didn't even mention. Yeah, there are characters that we will have to, like, expand upon in a later discussion of this book. Yeah, like, we didn't even talk about Petricor. And um, Petricor, like, she's literally one of my favorite characters. Yeah, and we didn't even get to, like, uh, we we barely mentioned the Will sister. Uh, Yeah. Well, expect another one of these. Yep. Because I could talk about this forever. And that's what I do on this podcast. Thank you, Beck, for joining me. Um, This was great. Um, Everyone go read Saga. And remember, all tin men are semi-robotic men with axes, but not all semi-robotic men with axes are tin men. Correct. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman's theme music was written by Charlotte Rosenthal. Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman is produced by Mythonomica Productions. Thank you for listening.